So that should have given you enough time to get to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to begin in chapter 1, where hopefully, prayerfully, we'll finish this entire uh, first chapter. But as you guys make your way that direction, the city of Thessalonica was formerly known to you history buffs as the city of Therma. It was called this because the city had hot springs located all around it. So it became a very popular vacation destination as well as being a, a port city on the Aegean Sea. So people would come from all, all over to bathe in these natural hot tubs. So little James Brown getting hot in hot tub. They would come to Thessalonica or what was known as Therma to enjoy this. Now around 315 BC as Alexander the Great had passed off the scene, his family was still around ruling and reigning uh, the Greek empire and his sister-in-law actually received this city as a gift from her husband and her name was Thessalonica. And so this was named after the half-sister of Alexander the Great. Now for the Apostle Paul, he plants this church in Acts chapter 17. This comes directly after he was in Philippi. And so a quick aside to the map, if it pulls up here for me, you'll notice that Philippi was located to the north and to the west, or to the east, excuse me, Uh, Well, if it shows up, there you go. To the north and to the east, you'll see Philippi in what is ancient Macedonia or modern-day Greece. And so for the Apostle Paul, he and Silas and Timothy leave Philippi after persecution, and they come to Thessalonica. And when they arrive, they begin to do what Paul would often do. He would go into a Jewish synagogue, and he began to open the Old Testament and teach that Jesus is the Messiah. Now remember, they didn't have our New Testament, right? They only had the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, this is one of the earliest letters written by the Apostle Paul, which is why we're studying it now. We've looked at Galatians and James and 1 Thessalonians. These three at least are agreed to be the earliest writings, but there weren't even gospels issued at this point in time. And so these letters were really an encouragement to these early churches to dig into the Old Testament text. Now, for the Apostle Paul, he was only able to be in Thessalonica for three weeks. Three Sabbaths is what we're told in Acts 17. Now, imagine his teaching and and what these uh, folks were able to glean from scriptures after just three weeks of having Paul's teachings, which also begs the question of uh, what does experience really look like in the Christian church? That we get excited about longevity and decades and time and gray hair, which are all wonderful and important. We also get excited about degrees and theologies and doctrines. But the reality is God far values obedience above any kind of theology. That what he's really looking for is an obedient, willing heart. And he will pour out his Holy Spirit on the one who is willing to listen and obey. And so as Paul commends Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, let, let no one despise you because of your youth. Do not think that God can't do a work in you, even if you're young in age or young to the faith. He is willing and able to pour out his spirit upon you. And so, again, he puts an, an emphasis on obedience. Now, as Paul breaks up this letter, what we find is in chapters 1 through 3, he's giving a personal encouragement to the church at Thessalonica. They've come across a lot of persecution, and he's trying to come alongside them. And what he does is he reminds them of all that God has done in their past. When they were together previously, he gives them personal reminders of this is what God has done, and he will continue to do it in your lives. 
That's important, by the way, for us and why I always encourage people to journal. Right? If you're a man, it's a journal because we're too manly to diary, but they look very similar, but it's way different, I assure you, ladies. But the reality is, as we journal, what we do is we get reminders of what God has done in the past for us. Why? Because we forget. I don't know about you, but I, I continually forget God's goodness in my life. But the beauty of going back through a journal is to be able to see time and time again how he has been faithful to us. And so I want to encourage you as you grow with Christ is to journal, write things down so that you can be reminded of God's goodness in your life. Now he transitions from there and then gives them practical application in chapters 4 and 5. And the two major areas he gives them practical application in are on the return of Jesus Christ. Now, regardless of where you stand on this topic about the return of the second coming of Christ, here's what I know cannot be argued in Scripture. He is coming back. He is going to return. You can get into all kinds of debate, and I'm going to give you my take on it later on this morning, but the reality is he is coming back. There are 260 chapters written in the New Testament. And in those 260 chapters, 210 of those chapters have a mention of the second coming of Christ. And it is mentioned 318 times. I feel like the Holy Spirit wants us to know he's coming back, folks. And so this is a point of emphasis for the Apostle Paul in these final two chapters. And in that, he's going to encourage them in how they are to minister as a church. What does it look like with the knowledge and the understanding that Jesus is coming back? It leads us to live a life of urgency, to want to go have that conversation, to want to talk with my coworker, my family, my friend. And it also leads us to live in anticipation of knowing that he's going to return. I can eagerly anticipate it with excitement, with joy, knowing that I can endure even persecution because I know that he's not going to leave me or forsake me. Now, we begin, finally, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul writes, Paul, Silvanus, that is Silas, just his proper name, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as Paul begins, he starts off as he does all of his letters with a greeting and he lists out his name. It's a little bit different than what we would typically write, but think about this. In ancient times, they would write on a scroll. These scrolls could be 10, 12, 14 feet long. So you didn't want to read the entire scroll to wait to figure out who wrote me this letter. It's important. It changes the context. And so in these writings, they would put their name right off the bat. You know who is writing you this letter. So Paul says this is from... Paul and Timothy and, and Silas were writing to you and were writing to the Thessalonians. It's also important to note who, is, who they're writing to. You wouldn't want to read the entire letter and get to the end of a 14-foot scroll and realize, oh, that wasn't for you. Sorry, wrong church I was writing to. And so they give the intended party right off the bat so you would know at the beginning of the letter. And he writes it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, at least as a kid, and probably well into my 20s, I thought that the Lord's name was the Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't really realize that they were actually uh, much different, that the Lord is his title. In Hebrew, it is Adonai. It means master. Jesus, in Hebrew, is Yeshua. It's translated into Greek for us as Jesus, but his name in Hebrew is Yeshua. It means Jehovah is salvation. And so you have both his name and his 
purpose. Remember what Joseph got as a word from the angel. He, he said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. And so his name and his purpose are Jesus. And then finally, Christ. In the Greek, it's Christos, but in the Hebrew, it's Mashiach, which I like to say, especially with that at the end, like Mashiach. And, and it means the anointed one. And so we have his calling, because those that would be anointed in ancient times were prophets and priests and kings. And Jesus is the only one who would hold all three offices. And so here in his name, we have his title, his name, and his calling all lumped in together. Now, why did I belabor that? Well, for this reason, uh, we get really excited about Jesus, our Savior. I'm excited when I look at my sin and I want a Savior. I need somebody to deliver me. But where we get hung up is, is he your Lord? Are we willing to lay down our life and be obedient? That's usually where the hang-up is. And he cannot be your Savior if you will not make him your Lord. Now, he continues and says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives what are known as the Siamese twins of the New Testament of a greeting. It's grace and peace. These two are always linked together and always in that order. So grace, in the Greek, the word is charis, and it was a common Greek greeting. They would say to each other, grace, charis to you, brother. It means grace or beautiful, have a wonderful day. And for the Hebrews, they would greet each other with the word shalom. If this was a Jewish synagogue, well, nobody would be here because it's Sunday. But if it was yesterday, and this was a Jewish synagogue, you would hear shalom, shalom, everybody. It means peace. Now, what is interesting is Paul has taken a Greek greeting and a Jewish greeting, and he has smushed them together. Why? Because in Christ Jesus, we are one. What Paul says in Galatians 3.28 is, There is no Jew, nor Greek, no Scythian, or barbarian, no slave or free, but Christ is all, and he is in all. And so as the world strives and claims to want unity, what we actually find is there is all kind of division created through false claims of unity. But in Christ Jesus, because he is all and is in all, we can truly be unified. This is what Paul is saying as he gives this greeting. Now, as we see the words put together, they're always listed in this order for a couple different reasons. First of all, from the spiritual standpoint, if we desire to have the peace of God, you must first experience or be willing to accept the grace of God. What is grace after all? It's God's riches at Christ's expense. It's unmerited favor. He did all the work for me that I could not do myself. And so to experience the peace of God, I must first accept the grace of Jesus Christ. Accept that into my life and allow the peace to wash over me. Now secondly is a practical note that if we desire to have peace, specifically in our households, we must first have grace. It does not come without grace. And so oftentimes what we struggle with is why do I not have peace in my house? Why do I not have peace in my family, peace in the workplace? The question we have to ask ourselves, and this is one that's difficult to reflect on, is how am I doing in the grace department? Yeah, but they hurt me. They don't deserve it. That's exactly why it's called grace. It's unmerited favor. It's giving someone what they do not deserve. And so as we give grace to one another, what you'll find is peace will actually abound. 
Now, continuing on, verse 2, Paul says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. And so he, as a church planner, he's looking on this little collection of people there in Thessalonica, and he's saying, man, I'm so thankful for you. I am so grateful for you. In just a short three-week period, Paul falls in love with these people. And as a church planner, I love that Paul says that because as I get the opportunity to week in and week out, look out on your faces, I am so very thankful. Because as I look back at what started with a little church building that didn't have anybody other than a Zumba class and a creepy trailer next to it because I'm living here while my family's in Missouri, I'm thinking who on earth would ever show up to that church? And yet week in and week out, you all show up. And, and the relationship grows, and we have the opportunity to pray for one another. And it becomes a family. And so very thankful for Paul writing that and can echo those sentiments. Now, verse 3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father. And so Paul is commending them, and he then lists out three attributes that this young church possesses. And those three attributes are, first of all, a work of faith. They were growing in a work of faith. Now, we get excited about works. We're ready to go out and do something for Jesus. Let's go. But here's the thing. This is a work of faith. And where does that begin? As Jesus was speaking to Pharisees that wanted to know in John chapter 6, verse 28, they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? How can we do the works of God? We, we want to ask you this question, teacher. And here's his response in verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he sent. The work of faith begins by belief. It begins by believing in Jesus, knowing that I can't do it on my own. So by faith, I'm going to have to do it through me. Paul continues and says, you've got a labor of love because he first loved us. We then have the ability to go out and love other people. We can't even experience real love until we first understand the love of Christ. His love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so as a result, we can then go out and splash love out on other people. Thirdly, he says, in, at the end of this verse, you've had a patience of hope. You've endured in hope. And this patience is a blessed assurance. And that assurance is, I know that I'm going to heaven. I don't have it all worked out. I don't have everything all figured out. But I know through the blessed assurance of Christ, it's, a, it's that kind of hope. It's not a hope like, I hope I get a cheeseburger after service today. Or I hope the sun comes out. It's a hope of knowing that I know that I know that he's going to come back for me. And so he commends them in this. And then verse 4, he says, Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Now, some of you are hearing warning sirens go off right now. Boop, boop, boop. You're getting ready to go into theological deep end of the pool. Why? Because there's this debate of did God choose me or did I choose God? This verse right here clearly states that we were elected by God. And so when I'm asked the question, did we choose God or did he choose us? You can jot this down. The answer is yes. Yes is the answer. What I mean by that is there is scripture that actually back up both. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. This is what Paul says regarding 
Did he choose me? If I can find Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. He chose us before the foundation of the world. And yet, if you skip on ahead or backwards to the left to Romans chapter 10 verse 13, Paul says, this, and in fact, Peter echoes it in Acts 2.21. This is a quote from the Old Testament from the prophet Joel. He says, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So did God choose me or did I choose him? And what you'll find is both, in fact, are true. That he's called us and yet he gives us an opportunity to have free will to choose him. It's not his fault that he already knows who's going to choose him and who is not going to choose him. But here's the thing. If you're concerned, what if God didn't choose me? I would encourage you to ask him. Ask him to choose you. And I assure you, he will choose you. Come to him. Repent. This is the message of Christ. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so we have an opportunity to just simply Ask him. Now, this idea of predestination where people get hung up also is, then did God predestine people to hell? And what I would encourage you is to look through your New Testament, and what you'll find is never, no, not never, one time is it mentioned people being predestined to hell. That every time election or predestination is mentioned, he is always talking about heaven. So the heart of the Father, the desire of, it, of God is that none should perish, but all should have everlasting life. It changes when you understand his character is that no one should actually go to that place. And so what we find is a big idea that we are not big enough to understand. And I love what Evelyn Underhill said. She says that if God was small enough to understand, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. There's some things we just cannot fully grasp. But I also like this quote from C.H. Spurgeon. He said, thank God that he chose me before I was born because he certainly wouldn't afterwards. <laughs> right? Some of you can relate to that. Right? If I'd done some living, he ain't going to pick me now. So thank God he chose me before I was born. Now, continuing on, we're out of the deep end of the pool. You'll be okay. Verse 5, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. Now, this is the gospel being brought to them by Paul and Timothy and Silas. He's saying is there was actual evidence that the gospel was brought to you through signs and wonders and miracles. Now, some will say, but I don't see signs and wonders and miracles uh, today. And I would encourage you to look to your right and to your left, and you will see changed lives. And by the way, that is miraculous. There is no bigger miracle than God being able to go in and inhabit and transform us from the inside out. And so he is still to this day in the miracle business. And what his word is from Paul and also from Jesus himself was to give us power. Acts chapter 1 uh, verse 8. When we studied through Acts, we looked at this. Jesus, before the ascension, he says in verse 8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You guys might recall that when he says the word power, the Greek word is dunamos. It's where we get our word dynamite from. It's Jimmy J.J. J. Walker, dynamite power. 
That's what the Lord wants to give us. Not so that we can go and zap people left and right, but so that we can be witnesses. Witnesses of Jesus in Jerusalem, right in my own home, in Judea, in my neighborhood, in Samaria, in my county, and to the ends of the earth. He desires to give us power, to give us confidence to go and spread the gospel. Now, back to the scripture at the end of verse 5. He says, and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake, and you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit. And so they'd received the word of God, this, this free gift of salvation. But what they quickly realize, and this isn't the most popular point to teach in church on Sundays, is that the gift of salvation is free but it will cost you everything. It will cost you. Sometimes it's friends. Sometimes it's family relationships. Sometimes it's occupations. It will have a price, but it is worth all of eternity. And so Paul's encouraging them to have joy in the knowledge that while they're being persecuted, they know that they have an eternal destination. How can they have joy? Justin read this last week in Colossians chapter 3. Verse 2, Paul writes to that church and says, Set your mind on things above and not on the things of the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. How can we have joy in the midst of persecution? By getting our eyes on the prize, by looking up. It's, it's eternity that we're actually seeing when we do that. It's not all this temporary stuff that we have going on. And for the Apostle Paul, he knew that well. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this is what Paul says with respect to persecution. And by the way, if you go ahead in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, you'll understand the kind of persecution Paul is talking about. He was beaten five times with a, a cat of nine tails, 39 stripes laid across his back, three times with rods. He was stoned nearly to death, and he spent three days being shipwrecked. That's a lot of persecution. To which he says in chapter 4, verse 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Paul's able to look at all that that he had experienced and able to say, that's just a light and momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory. In light of eternity, it's not so bad. And so the way I liken it, because I'm from Clark County and we're not that sharp, is I was thinking back to my high school football days. And as a junior, I took a helmet right on the outside of my arm when I was going across the goal line. And as I did, my entire arm went numb. My right arm did. And uh, later in the week, I thought nothing more of it, continued to play in the game. But later in the week, I went to grab a glass at my parents' house, and I didn't have enough strength to even be able to hold a glass of water in my hand. And so I knew there were some pretty serious things that were happening to my right arm. Now, wanting to continue to play, of course, I didn't want to sit out. My coach fashioned this big arm pad for me that left my arm locked in a angled position, and I was able to have a therapy because every time I would get hit again on that arm, the arm would go numb. I wouldn't be able to feel anything. It was like shooting pain through my body. 
And so he fashions this pad for me, and we're able to continue to play. And as the season draws on, we're, we're headed to hopefully a spot in the playoffs. And one particular game at the end of the season, uh, my number gets called, and I get a little play off to the left in the flat, and the quarterback overthrows me. And so without even thinking, what I do is I raise that right arm up. And I was not this good of a receiver. It was a once-in-a-lifetime. But I catch the ball with my one hand, my bad arm, and come down with it to proceed into the goal line and take a helmet right on the outside of my arm. Pain shooting down my arm. But you see, it was completely ignored because I scored. We went on to win the game. That is what Paul is talking about. That this light and momentary affliction, did it hurt in the moment? Absolutely it hurt like heck. And yet it did not matter in the big picture because we won the game. What we are experiencing in this life, it will not matter in the light of eternity. It will be a light and a momentary affliction. Now continuing in verse 7. So that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. Verse 8, for, you, for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. He is commending them as they endure trials that people are noticing. That is important to note, that as you endure trials, other people watch. They see. They see how you work from one step to the next, how you can just simply put one foot in front of the other. You might wonder, am I doing any good at all? And the reality is you are an encouragement to others. What Paul would say to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That Paul was an imitator of Jesus Christ. And he encouraged others to imitate him. It's a bold claim to say that. And yet he was able to say it because people were noticing how he would endure affliction. How he would push ahead. And so what Jesus would say to the Pharisees is he rebuked them. It was essentially you stand out in the marketplace and you proclaim all these words. All this scripture. But the reality is your life doesn't line up. You're a bigot, and you're greedy, and you're jealous, and your heart is black. So you can speak and say all the scriptures you want, but your life doesn't line up. What Paul's commending these Thessalonians in is their life lined up with the scriptures. What James said as we studied through it is, Be ye doers and not hearers only of the word of God. They were doers of the word of God. They were taking the word to the highways and the byways, encouraging other people in the towns all around them. And that causes us to question, does my life line up with Scripture? And it's easy for me to ask that question for people that don't know me very well. I can put it on pretty well to the outside world. But what does it look like to the people who know me the best? To the people I live with? Does my life line up to Scripture to them? Is that what my kids would testify of or my wife? And so it's convicting for sure, especially when I see behaviors, right? As they imitate, who are they imitating? 
And when I see things that don't look at all Christ-like, I have to question myself, where did they see this? Where did they get this? And what I'm left with is, it's got to be their mother. That's for sure. Thankfully, it'll take her a few days to listen to this, so I should be completely fine for the next week. But the reality is I have to wonder, whose behavior are they imitating? Far too often it's convicting for me when I see it doesn't line up with Scripture. And so Paul is commending them, and we're encouraged to have a life that lines up and one that is holy. Now verse 9, he says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned away from God, and from idols, excuse me, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. And so Paul, going back to verse 3, as he commended them in these three areas, he repeats what they had just done. He says, you turn from idols, which is a work of faith. It would take tremendous faith for them to turn away from everything that they had known up to that point. He then says, you serve the true and living God. This is a labor of love. They realized what Christ had done for them, and they, they were happy to have the opportunity to serve the true and the living God. And then finally, they waited for his son from heaven, the patience of hope, the eager anticipation And when you look deeply into what this means, this is compared to, in the Greek, a mother who is waiting, eagerly anticipating the birth of a child. And if you think about what that looks like, if you've ever experienced that as a mother or as a a father, you've witnessed this, what they do is they nest, right? Mothers will start to nest. They'll begin to get things in order, want the nursery to look just perfect. And for my wife, as we were going to welcome our fourth child home. I remember the room had to be just perfectly in order, and the final piece that would go into place was this little white chair on the screen, that little rocking chair. And she just sat there in it, holding her stomach. Why? Because she was eagerly anticipating the arrival of her child with great joy. And so this is what we are to do when it comes to eager anticipation of our Lord and Savior. We are to be getting things in order, getting things set out, knowing that he is going to come back for us to get things assembled and put together. Now, at the end of verse 10, what Paul concludes with, and we'll wrap up with this morning, is that they are to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so the promise that he gives is to deliver us from the wrath that is to come. Now what is this wrath speaking of? Daniel chapter 9, Daniel prophesied of the time of Jacob's trouble. It's often called the tribulation period or the seven years of tribulation. It's detailed and documented well by John the Apostle in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. And it's a time where God's wrath is poured out on all mankind for the judgment of the world. They've been storing up God's wrath. And so we see this awful time period. And what Paul is saying is we have been spared from that wrath. Many people will call this the rapture. If you've been in church any length of time, you've probably heard that word. I've even heard people say, yeah, but the word rapture never appears in the New Testament. That is actually correct because the New Testament was written in Greek. There's all kinds of words that didn't appear in the New Testament because it wasn't written in your language. The word is the word harpazo, 
which appears 13 times in the New Testament, and it means to be caught up or snatched away quickly. That word was translated into Latin. The word is rapturo, and is where we get our word rapture from. And so the word does, in fact, appear. And the idea is to be caught up quickly or snatched away prior to the wrath being poured out. And so if you look at the letter of uh, the book of Revelation and you're confused, when does this take place? Look at chapter 4, what happens with John as he sees a door to heaven opened up and he is taken up quickly. He is snatched away and all the things that he documents from there on, he is witnessing from heaven. Paul would use the same word when we get to chapter 4 of Thessalonians of being caught up or snatched away quickly. And so the point of all this is is that we are not, as believers of Jesus, appointed to wrath. Now, one other place to just note is Peter documents this as, as well in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You remember back to the Old Testament story of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Wrath getting ready to be poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah. But what happens is the angels go and visit there in Genesis 19. And as they arrive, they have to remove Lot. They have to remove the one righteous person in the whole area. Now you can look at Lot's life and you can question how righteous he really was, but for the angels, if you look there, they say, we must take you away before the wrath can be poured out. And so he was caught up quickly. He was snatched away from Sodom before the wrath was poured out. And so you have a picture of the rapture happening even all the way back to Genesis 19. Now, All that to say, why in the world is this important? How does this apply to me today? Because the whole thing just got weird right there. Here's why it's so important. Our understanding of the end times, our understanding of the rapture, directly affects how we look at God's character. If he is a good, good father, how many of you with children would ever pour out your wrath upon your own children? We would go to great lengths to stop that from happening, wouldn't we? And what Luke chapter 11 says is that if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? He says, look, if you're evil and you know how to do good for your kids, how much more will our Father in heaven give us good gifts? And so our understanding of the end times is important because it affects how we view the nature of of God. The other thing that it does is it helps us live life correctly. And what I mean by that is we spend our time, for the most part, living things completely backwards. We live and we build and we try to create and carve out a spot to live this life as if it were heaven. And yet it's temporary. It is is not going to last. We see it over and over and over again. And so we try to carve out as much as we can for ourselves to live as comfortably as we can and to not have to push the envelope, and yet eternity is at hand. And the way we should live, the way we're called to live, is to live with eternity in mind and not take this temporary life so seriously. It challenges us to have that conversation with our neighbor, with our kids, with our parents that we are struggling to have. Will I have that talk with them? But this makes me feel uncomfortable. In light of eternity, it will not. In light of eternity, we should. Now, for the world at large that does not believe in Jesus, 
You can't blame them for trying to make this place heaven. They should try to as much as they can if they don't have any hope at all for eternity. But what we begin to realize and understand as we mature is that if this is your heaven, this is one hell of a heaven. There's no heaven here. There's no satisfaction in this life. Now, for the Christian, what you begin to understand is that the absolute worst the world can throw at me, the absolute most persecution is the closest to hell I will ever get. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Whatever the world can toss at me, the worst possible scenario, that is as bad as it's ever going to get. And I've got all of eternity to be in the presence of Christ. And so it causes us to live our life right-sized. And it causes us to be encouraged that he will not leave me or forsake me. That is a wonderful thing if you're in the midst of a trial, to know that he is not going to leave me here because he's my dad and he loves me. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for the beginning of the letter to the Thessalonians. Lord, we thank you for promises that we can see in Scripture that you are not going to leave us or forsake us. Far too often, Lord, it feels like we are. But we cling to, we grasp to, we, we excitedly go back to your word to be reminded that you have not left. Lord, thank you for the ability we have to write down your goodness so that we can go revisit it, just like what Paul is doing for this crew. Father, help us to live a life that, like these Thessalonians, lines up with the Word of God so that others look in and they wonder, how can we live with joy in the middle of a struggle? It can all point back to you. It's all for you, Father. In Jesus' name.